Well, happy Wednesday, everybody. It is good to be with you this evening. Um, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in John chapter 6 tonight. And I am going to, um, I'm going to make a partial commitment to you that I'm going to try to keep this to 45 minutes tonight, okay? So you hold account to me, and if I broach that, feel free to throw whatever you want to throw um, at Pastor Justin, um, and we will be sure to um, go ahead and cut that off. Tonight, we begin a new series. Uh, it's entitled, I Am, and basically what we're doing is we are camping out in the book of John. Uh, in John, there are seven or eight different times where Jesus talks and he is identifying himself as God when he says different things like we will go through over the next six weeks or so. He says things like tonight we'll focus on when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. These kind of things Jesus says. And every time Jesus says these things, he is affirming his deity. And it all traces back, uh, way back to to Exodus, you remember when uh, scripture says that Moses is, um, he has fled out of Egypt and now he is tending uh, the flocks in Midian and all of a sudden he sees this bush that's on fire but it's not being consumed and he goes over and he speaks to the bush and, and God is speaking through the bush and the Lord speaks to him and Moses says, when I go to deliver the people of, of Israel out of Egypt, who do I say sent me? And the Lord simply says, you tell them I am sent me. And Jesus, thousands of years later, begins to identify himself as the deity incarnate um, when he goes through all these different types of metaphors. And so over the next six weeks or so, we're going to go through all these uh, uh, different sayings and we're going to break them down and, and just talk about how they kind of apply to our life. Uh, I want to echo Pastor Justin in that um, we congratulate uh, President Biden and we continue to pray for him as well as all of our national leaders that the Lord will help them to steer our nation in the best way possible. And so tonight we're going to be in John chapter 6. Um, before we get there, let me, uh, let me just give you a little bit of an overview regarding uh, the book of John. So John, the, the author of this book, it is, he is not the same John as John the Baptist. That was a completely different man. This is John, whom we call John the Beloved, who was Jesus' closest friend. Uh, at the Last Supper, uh, the Lord allows him to lay his head on, on Jesus' chest. Uh, this is John the Revelator. He is the one who will, uh, on the Isle of Patmos, he'll get the, the Revelation, the book of Revelation. Uh, this is the same John, the Apostle John, that, that writes the Gospel of John. So not only does he write the Gospel of John, but he writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he also writes the book of, of Revelation. And so as we, as we dig in, like I said, over the next few weeks, we're going to be in the book of John because the I am statements that Jesus makes are only found in John's Gospel. They're not found in the other Gospels. And there, there's a reason, there's a little bit of an interesting uh, dynamic that, that it's important to be aware of in this, is that John's gospel is very unique from the other three gospels, okay? It is not, uh, it is, I mean, it's similar in that it is a gospel, it is the telling of the good news of Jesus through one of his uh, people. However, what makes John unique is that it is, it is very different from the other three. The other three is what we call, we call them the, 
the synoptic gospels, which basically just means this, that, that the three, they kind of mirror each other. They are, they are alike. They are similar. And so what you'll see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is you will see um, the same events told time and time again, but they're told from a different perspective, right? So this would be a, a situation, I, I explained it to our school leadership students kind of like this. It would be as if, if Pastor Justin were going down uh, Harbison and it was the middle of a rainstorm and the person driving in front of him slams on brakes uh, to stop at a red light and he slams on brakes but his car slids and it hits into the other person. Somebody else from the other direction hits Pastor Justin. Uh, a car wreck has, has just happened. The difference is, is that when the police officer shows up and he asks Pastor Justin what happens, Pastor Justin is going to get out and he's going to say, well, I was driving down the road and this moron in front of me slammed on their brakes. I didn't have time. I slammed on my brakes. I ran into him. This person over here didn't see it. They, they came and hit me. The person that was in front of Pastor Justin is going to get out and the police officer is going to say, well, what just happened? And that person is going to give a completely different rendition from what Pastor Justin gave, the person that T-bowled them is going to give another version, and the person in the store across the street that runs over and just being super nosy is like, officer, if you need a witness, I saw what happened. They are going to give a completely different version of the same event. What happened? It was a car wreck, right? But there are different views of how that car wreck unfolded, how things transpired. When we talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're telling the same stories over and over and over again, but the details are very different. So it's not that we just get the same story repeated over and over again, we get a different angle on the story. And so we call these the synoptic gospels. John is very different in that because um, what, what we estimate is about 90% of John is unique to John. It's not mentioned in the other three. And the stuff in the other three is not mentioned in John, right? So it's a very unique book. Um, it's a book that um, really only covers about 12 days in the life of Jesus. Like when you, when you put it all together, it, it only focuses on a few days here. But the fascinating thing about John is this, is that because John is who he was, he was the most intimate man on the earth in relationship with Christ he would see things that others would never see. He would be so close and he would hear conversations and he would hear murmurings of Jesus and he would hear different things that were said and done and how they unfolded in a completely different way than the other three gospel writers. And so in this, we have a huge advantage with, with the book of John. We have uh, these metaphors that he used that aren't just statements like he is the bread of life and it's a fun cliche thing to say, but it's actually revealing a different angle of the character of who God is. And so as we unpack these over the next few weeks, we will, we will read very large portions of scripture so that we can understand the context of, of everything that's going on. And we will kind of unpack it and we will see what the Lord would say to us as individuals and as a church. And so tonight we're going to be in John chapter 6. Um, now to kind of set you up and give you a little frame for, for what's going on in John 6. Um, number one, uh, John 6 is the, the, the longest chapter in the entire book of John, Okay. The events that happened in John chapter 5 
are not related to John chapter six. The events that happen in six are about a year after everything that happened in chapter five. So as you're reading through, make sure that you understand that these are not really related events that are going on from five to six. By the time we get to six, Passover has just happened in Jerusalem. So you have all these people that have descended into the city. Um, they've come from all over the nation of Israel to celebrate the Passover. Jesus begins speaking to the people. The Bible says that there were 5,000 men that were listening to him. Now the Bible says 5,000 men, most scholars believe that women and children were there, they were present. And so if, if you just did simple math, that, that would easily put it over 10,000 people that Christ was ministering to uh, in this moment. And so he, he gathers them all together. He's teaching them all these new things and they are so excited about what God is doing through this man. And then all of a sudden the people start complaining because they're hungry, they have nothing to eat. And so Jesus calls on Andrew and he says, listen, bring, bring me some food. And Andrew says, you gotta be kidding me. There's no way that we can feed all these people. And so uh, Jesus says, just bring me what you have. Andrew brings it to Jesus, five loaves of bread, two fish, and Jesus makes a true miracle of a moment. He feeds the multitudes with this small uh, supply of food and he is able to do it. So he does this and by this point, the people are so riled up, they, they want to make him the king, right? And so Jesus, and all of his wisdom understands that his time has not come yet. So he removes himself from the situation. He goes away, the Bible says he goes to pray. Overnight, the disciples get on their ship and they head to Capernaum. They're going across the Sea of Galilee. In the middle of the night, Jesus follows them walking on water and they arrive at Capernaum the next day. As we begin to open John chapter six, this is where the scene has led to. The people who have just experienced this miracle have followed Jesus across the Sea of Galilee to this new town and this is where the Bible picks up in, in John chapter six. The Bible says this in your notes. When the people found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Very important for where we're going. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, the work of God that you believe in him whom God has sent. So they said to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread, from, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to him, to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall no longer hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the father gives me 
will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. And this is the most important portion of the scripture. Jesus says this, and truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can, how can this man give, give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood. Now listen to this. Unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And after this, his disciples turned back, many disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, Lord, I know that this is a big portion of scripture we have just read, and there is a lot of going back and forth and a lot of word usage here. But Lord, I wanna pray by the power of your spirit that you will speak to us as individuals and corporately. Father, may we hear what the spirit of the Lord is saying to us tonight through the bread of life. And Lord, may we partake of it and may we be sustained unto everlasting life, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen, amen, amen. If, if you have ever seen a miracle, it will absolutely change your perspective about many, many things, especially in the moments following the miracle. Um, there's something that usually happens to a person where they begin to stop focusing so much on what's going on in the natural because they understand that there is another realm at play in this moment, right? Um, I remember my wife and I, we have been here almost 10 years. This is our 10th year being at Christian Life. And uh, I remember when we moved into our home that we still live in today out in Lexington, um, we, were, we were moving in and we had had some students, we moved from Panama City, we were in youth ministry in Panama City, and we had some students that had, had moved up here with us and they were going to the School of Leadership 
And um, I remember there was a tremendous move of God during that year. I mean, a tremendous, I don't know if you remember, but I mean, it was incredible. It was an incredible move um, in, the, in the school that year. And um, we had had some of our students that had come up with us from Panama City, and then some other students from the school just came, and they were helping us move in, and uh, we were moving all kind of furniture. I was not going to turn away free help. Um, and so we had, we had all these students in the house, and um, people were moving things and breaking things. I mean, helping us move everything, and um, no, it was really good. And um, I'll never forget, there was, there was one of the students... Um, she had hurt her wrist. She was going to pick something up and I think it slipped or something. I think, I, I really think she sprained her wrist. She had problems with it after that. Um, I think she sprained her wrist and um, she couldn't do anything. She said, ow. And, and then somebody came over and they said, well, let's, uh, let's lay hands on her and let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to, to heal her. And so we all kind of gathered around and, and we lay hands on her and, and prayed. And um, it was amazing because nothing happened. Um, there was like, there was, we were like, how do you feel? And she was like, it hurts really bad. And you're like, well, you know, maybe the Lord's will be done. What do you say? You know? And, um, I will never forget, um, just not even really thinking about it moving forward. We, we prayed, we believed it didn't happen. We moved forward, you know? And, um, I will never forget later that night, um, after everybody had left, my wife came to me. Now, keep in mind, my wife has had, uh, she inherited uh, horrible, you can't tell it from looking at her, but horrible dental issues. Like her, especially in, in these back areas, she, she, she just inherited um, real problems. So she's always had sensitivity and she's always, you know, been going to the dentist and just different things like that, always had problems with it. And later that evening, she came to me and she said, after all the students left, she said, I didn't want to say anything. She said, but you know how this tooth or whatever, I'm going to have to have it pulled. It's been, it's been just killing me, killing me, killing me. I said, yeah. She said, when we were praying for the girl, she said there was such an overflow of the spirit. She said that when we prayed for her healing, my tooth stopped hurting. And she said, I didn't want to prematurely like jump to a conclusion and, you know, prematurely celebrate. She said, but this is like eight hours later and I feel it hasn't given me any pain since. And I know when we look at something like that, that can be, that can be super subjective, right? That can be, um, and a, a cynical person would say, well, her, it wasn't a miracle, her tooth just started hurting. And, and people can think that if they want. But when you begin to look at a miracle that happened at the level of feeding 5, 10, 15,000 people with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread, it does something or it should do something in your mind. When this happened with my wife, it was, it was, it was an incredible moment. We celebrated, but it was almost like in that moment, my, my mind went from just the natural realm and it started thinking about the possibilities of the physical realm. And the reason is because when God does something for us in the natural realm, it is always, always, always intended to point us to the spirit realm. It is always intended for something more than what we experience here, right? You can see this documented all throughout scripture as Jesus is, is walking the earth and he's healing people. He heals blind Bartimaeus, but it wasn't just so Bartimaeus could, could see. It was so that he could come to faith in Christ. The man, the paralytic that was lowered down by his friends, Christ raised him up so he would no longer be paralyzed, but it wasn't just so he would no longer be paralyzed. It was unto salvation. You even look at the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Um, 
that, that truly, we said we want to, that should truly be considered a miracle that those men did not kill her. That is truly a miracle. But it wasn't just to preserve her natural life. It was to do something in the spirit realm that they were not aware of. And so when we begin to see the people uh, um, in this, in this um, narrative here, we get this understanding that these people aren't there yet. They have just seen something amazing in the natural, but somehow and for some reason, their mind is still stuck in the natural, right? Like their attitude was kind of like, Jesus, uh, that dinner you made last night was amazing, but what you got for breakfast, right? It wasn't like, what do you have deeper than that? What does this mean? Unpack all this. What are you saying to me? It was none of that. It was coming Jesus and he calls them out for it. You remember, he, they say, where, 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 how did you get here before us? Jesus doesn't even answer them. He jumps straight to the point. And he says, you're not seeking me for me. You notice that? He says, you're not seeking me for me. And you're not even seeking me because of what you saw me do. You're seeking me because of what you got out of it. Right? And, and I think it's so important for us to remember. And listen to me, I, I believe in miracles. I, I believe in modern miracles. I absolutely uh, unapologetically believe in that. I think that we need to have, uh, I heard somebody say one time that we need to be people who have a critical mind, but not a critical spirit. And I think that we need to judge miracles in the same way that we would judge prophecies. I think that we need to have some type of evidence that somebody's claiming this miraculous physical healing, then we should be able to prove that in some way. Um, so so I, I'm saying like there, there are, are things that God does in the physical realm, but it's never intended to stay in the physical realm. It's always intended to, to move on and, and to do. And so what we see in this narrative here is we see Jesus talking to a group of people and they are kind of stuck in this physical mentality. They're stuck in like, Jesus is talking about bread. They're not really sure what he's talking about because they're talking about a physical thing, but Jesus is talking about spiritual bread. And what we see unfold in this narrative is Jesus is kind of like trying to get them unstuck He's trying to take them from an understanding of the physical nature of bread to understanding that there is a spiritual dynamic in all the miracle, all the things that you see going on and in himself. And so we see these people, and it's so funny. It is so funny how we are so human. I can, I can be so critical of these people until I start thinking about some of the things that I've done and thought and different things. But when you look at these people, they're their desires are so low. They have, they have the creator God in their grasp. And instead of seeing him as the Messiah over the universe, they want to make him a physical king over a region. Instead of understanding that this is like the bread of life, instead of trying to understand, they are talking about physical bread when Christ is trying to help them understand that there is a spiritual dynamic to it. And so what these people do is they begin, as Jesus begins to walk them from the, from the physical to the more eternal spiritual things, you begin to see these people begin to kind of put the dots together, right? They, they go from this thing where they're just talking about physical bread and then they go to this place where 
they, they, they begin to look at what Jesus has done with the, with the multiplying of, of the bread. And then they kind of connect it back over here to what Moses did in the wilderness with the manna. You remember this? And in, in, back in Exodus, the Bible says that they were in, they were in the wilderness for, for 40 years. They had no sustenance. They had no, nothing to eat, anything like that. And the Bible says that the Lord provided this uh, with the dew of the morning, this white flaky stuff, and they would have to go and collect it and they would knead it together and it would become a type of, of, of bread type thing. And so the Lord would provide bread for them in, in the wilderness. And so these people begin to kind of connect the dots between Jesus and, and Moses and you begin to see them kind of toggle back and forth. You see these people ask a question twice of Jesus. They ask him twice to produce manna from heaven. Now, keep in mind, they didn't ask him to produce bread. He had already multiplied bread just the day before. They were associating Jesus with Moses and they asked him twice to produce manna. Now, scholars who are much more brilliant than any of you know, anybody I know, they believe that there are, there are three reasons that um, the people begin to ask Jesus to produce this manna. The reasons are because rabbis of the Old Testament began to teach the people um, what the Messiah would look like, how he would act, the things that he would do. They began to paint a picture of the Messiah hundreds of years before he ever would arrive. And so by the time that he does arrive, the people that have set under this, this teaching of this is what the Messiah will do, this is what he'll look like, by the time he shows up, they are looking for these boxes to check, right? So a couple of the boxes are, for instance, they are trying to connect Jesus with Moses because most of the rabbis would teach that the Messiah, when he comes, just as Moses, who they called our first redeemer, just as Moses caused manna to fall from heaven, our final redeemer, the Messiah, will cause manna to fall from heaven also. So you see this, this toggling back and forth where the, where the people are like, it's physical, but, but hold on, wait a second. Could this be the Messiah? And so they, they begin to ask, well, if you are the Messiah, why don't you just call down manna from heaven, right? So this is one of the reasons. The second reason is that rabbis would teach that the Messiah, when he would come, he would go and retrieve Jeremiah's hidden jar of manna. Now, it's said that Jeremiah took a jar of manna, the prophet Jeremiah, and he hid it in the Ark of the Covenant. And so the rabbis would teach that when the Messiah comes, he knows all things. He knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. He will go and retrieve the manna as evidence that he is the Messiah. And so the people are saying, if this is the Messiah, maybe he has the jar of Jeremiah and can produce it. And we can have proof that this is the Messiah. One of the other reasons that they thought that, that he may have, have been the Messiah is because manna was always connected with, with the coming of the kingdom of God. And so rabbis, for years and years, they would never teach about a meek and mild Messiah. They would never teach this idea. The major prophets would teach this idea, this concept. But the rabbis of the day, they, they would not teach this. They were teaching things like Jesus would, when, or excuse me, when the Messiah comes, 
that he will be like super charismatic and he will be uh, militant and he will come and establish a physical kingdom on the earth the first time he comes. So you've got these people that are kind of boxed into their idea of what the Messiah will look like when he comes. Now, let me give just a, a word of caution here for, for all of us, myself uh, especially included, okay? These rabbis were not teaching scripture. They weren't teaching the word of God. Scripture does not indicate that the Messiah will come and retrieve Jeremiah's jar and produce it as evidence that he's the Messiah. Scripture doesn't teach that. That was a traditional teaching that was passed down through generations and generations, but they had in their minds, the rabbis wouldn't lie and the rabbi shouldn't lie. But the point is that instead of going and comparing the scriptures for themselves, they only listen to people they thought were qualified to teach them. Listen, a few years ago, I was in a, um, uh, I was in a gun safety program, I guess you could call it. And um, I went to this class and um, there were these people and uh, the, the person who was teaching the certification program uh, he was a pastor, and he was a good, good guy. I loved him. I, I, no ill. I have nothing against him or anything like that. So he's teaching the class, doing a great job. And at a certain point in the class, um, we take a break, and, and somebody asks him, well, what do you do? And he says, well, I'm a pastor. You know, I do this on the side and everything. And the person asks him, they say, well, you see all the craziness that's going wrong? And listen, this was a few years ago, okay? So I can't imagine what he'd be asking today. But... I said, well, what do you think about all this craziness going on? And the pastor looks at him and he says, well, I think this, that, and the other. And then he said something I will never forget because it bothered me so much. He said, but I'm not too worried about what's going to happen in the future because I believe that Jesus, and don't say amen to this just yet. I believe that Jesus is coming for us. And I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because God would not allow his children to suffer through anything like that. And it bothered me so bad. It bothered me so bad that he would say something like that for this reason. When I look at the Old Testament scriptures, even the New Testament scriptures, the church history that has evolved over the past couple of thousand years, when you look at the events that unfolded in Babylon, and with the Assyrians, and with Rome, and with all these people, with, with Hitler and Nazi Germany, when you look at all these things that specifically focused on God's people and their suffering for hundreds of years, to stand in a position and to be able to look at that and to say, but I am at a different place because I'm God's child and he would not allow me to suffer is the height of arrogance. Now, I'll say this. I don't think the man is arrogant. I think it was ignorant, not in a mean way. I hope I'm being kind. He just did not, I don't think, fully understand the character and the nature of God. And so I, I, I will say this, like I, I hope that we have a pre-tribulation rapture and I believe that, but there are a couple of other possibilities. And listen to me. You can build a biblical case on those other possibilities of when the rapture will occur. And so let me just say this. If we are a people that 
have this expectation that God is never gonna allow his people to suffer. If we have put all these boxes because we have been taught to interpret the scriptures a different way and we are wrong, it is going to be a mass falling away of people because they will be so disappointed that God allowed it to happen. And so my point is, is simply this, we cannot be a people who just listen to the regurgitation of what someone says. And I believe in, I'm a pastor for heaven's sake. I believe in the teaching and, and, and pastoring and, and these kind of, I, I believe we need to sit under that. But I'm saying that's not all that we need. We are called to be a people of God's word. We are called to be people like the Bereans. When the Bereans found out that, that Paul and all these people, there was this movement of the Jews and, and so many people were converting to Christianity. The Bible says that the, that the Bereans were more noble than the others because they took what Paul said and they measured it against the scriptures. And they were more noble because they did that. And so you've got a situation here where people have just been taught, this is what the Messiah is gonna look like. And they totally missed him because they were looking for something that God never intended. And so as, as, as these people, they're, they're still kind of stuck in this, this physical bread, they're, they're kind of shifting. What they fail to realize is that they are sitting here talking about the manna of, of Moses. And they're talking a little bit about the bread, but they're talking a whole lot about their fathers in the wilderness and all this kind of stuff. And what they are absolutely blinded to is that the manna in the wilderness was just a foreshadowing of who stood before them. They would have to, they, they would have to go. He, he was not just going to, the manna they would collect and it would sustain their physical life. Jesus was saying, but listen, the bread that I'm offering, it sustains eternal life, right? They, did, they were just so blinded to all this. And, I, and I'll say this, is Jesus connected to Moses in this? Absolutely. Jesus was like Exodus 2.0. Right, He was bringing a rescue. He was going to deliver his people, but it was at a greater level than Moses. But the people just couldn't get past what they were seeing. Can you imagine the frustration of Jesus in this moment? I mean, he's trying and he's so good. He's so patient. I probably would have been right there with him, right? Just like, oh, I don't understand what's going on. Um, it has gotta be, it, it is so frustrating to be able to, to try to help someone understand something that they just cannot understand, you know? Um, I, I waited uh, very late uh, to finish my, uh, my bachelor's degree. And um, I remember the only thing that stood between me and graduation was college algebra. And I had waited years and years for, for this one reason, because I didn't, I lacked the confidence because I th there's just no way that I can do this and I don't understand it, right? It was so bad that, that in my 30s, I had to hire an adult tutor to come and tutor me for eight weeks. We paid good money so that I could simply get over this hurdle of algebra. And guess what? I passed with a 73. It was amazing, right? But there were times, that's very low grade if you're not, if you're not tracking. Um, but listen, I just, I couldn't understand it. And there would be times I would be sitting there with the tutor and she was so good, she was so kind with me. But there would be times where I just saw her pierce through my soul like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> How do you not comprehend what I'm saying? And for me, I'm like, cause you're speaking a different language. This is not, this isn't even human. 
Like, what are you doing? You're looking at me like I'm crazy. You're crazy because you do understand, you know? And so I, I remember just looking at her eyes. She was just so terribly frustrated. And here's the thing. If you've ever had a kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You try to explain something to them that is just so rudimentary. It is so elementary. It is so just a no-brainer. And they look at you like you're from another world, right? And so Jesus, he is sitting here and he is talking. Listen, he is talking to his children. Now, they are grown children, but these are his babies. And so he is so patient and he is so kind and he is so tender with them. But all this time, he is shifting the conversation. He is saying, listen, this is not just a physical thing. This is a spiritual thing. It's, it's very reminiscent of the woman at the well. Remember the Samaritan woman? And, and, and Jesus is here and he says, draw me some water. And she's doing all this water. And he's talking about water on a spiritual level. And she's saying, no, this is a physical thing. And he's no, you don't understand. You know, and it's, it's very reminiscent of this whole scenario that's going on. But this is what's brilliant that Jesus does in both situations. Jesus takes them from an understanding that the water is not just physical. Physical water is good. You need it to survive. Physical bread is, is not, it's good, you need to survive, but it's not all that you need. And Jesus kind of lures them and he gets them from a place where they're understanding that this is just, just physical into thinking in a different way until they get to the cusp of it. And this is what they both say. Jesus is talking to them and he's explaining this to them. And in both situations, this is what they say. Then sir, if it is true, give it to us. Right? So he is able to finally make some headway. He's finally able to get them to a place where they're wanted for it. And when he finds that they are right there on the cusp, he goes for the jugular. Right? He jumps in and he has a very pointed conversation with them. And all of a sudden, the people understand, we're no longer talking about physical bread that produces physical life. We're talking about eternal bread that produces eternal life. So Jesus looks at him and he says, listen, my terms, not his. People, you've got two stomachs. You've got a physical stomach and you've got a spiritual stomach. And you can fill this and it'd be full and this one still be empty. And you need to pay attention to this, that you have an earthly stomach and you have an eternal stomach. And so at this moment, there's no question. Jesus, did you notice how many times in the text, Jesus says, and when you eat of this bread, I will raise them up on the last day. I will raise them up on the last day. I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus is referring to, to what we call the rapture of the church. It's the, the, the coming of Christ. When he comes there, Paul said this. He said, Jesus, the Messiah will come in the air and there will be a blast of a trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first, right? So Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when a person dies, their spirit is in heaven, but their physical body is in the earth. Scripture says that when the trumpet sounds, that the dead bodies will rise first and they will be joined together with their spirit and they will then be transformed into the glory, glorious transformation, right? So this is what Jesus is saying. There's no question what he's talking about at this point. They come to an understanding where they're saying, look, Jesus is saying, listen, um, this is an eternal matter. And furthermore, he says, it's not just an eternal matter, but I'm narrowing the road of salvation. You understand this? Several times he says, listen, unless you eat, you can't partake. He says, unless you believe, 
you can't partake. Unless my father draws you, you can't partake. And so in all this, Jesus is just, just giving it to him and he's narrowing the road of salvation and he's helping them understand, without me, no man comes to the father. Without eating of the bread, no person comes to the father. So in their natural minds, they hop back again and they say, we want eternal life. What do we got to do to work for it? What work can we do? And Jesus says, there is no work but to see and believe. He says, that is the work. And in this moment, what Jesus does, which is so, it's, it's just tucked away in the scripture. He is speaking to a culture that their entire existence has been founded on working and doing good things and making sacrifices so that they can appease the God of heaven. And in one sentence, Jesus dismantles all that. And he says, there's no work that you can do. You cannot do enough except for to see and believe in the one who has come. And so the reality is that although they, they see Jesus here, they fail to see Christ here. Although they can, they can see Jesus, they don't perceive Jesus. They see him in the natural, but they don't understand who he is in the spirit. And listen to me, I know that you know this, but listen to me, in this day, I'm telling you what, our babies that we're raising, our grandbabies that, that we're raising up, our, our, our students, our teenagers, they are, they are being raised in a culture that is not a monotheistic culture. They do not believe in one way to heaven, one way through Christ. They do not believe that. We as parents and grandparents and a church family, we have to instill this into our children so that they can partake because unless they do, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so, so it's so important that we help our children to understand that it is not any religion, it is not working for salvation, it is simply the work that Jesus has done and we must see and we must put our faith in him uh, for salvation. Now, there are some people, and I'm wrapping up here, y'all start throwing stuff um, here in just one minute. There is some of the language used in this some, some people would interpret this as to say that this is a very deterministic outlook, basically saying that God has chosen who will be, the, the scripture kind of uses language like, like if God draws you, you can come and all these different things. And some people will use it as ammunition to say that, you know, God is basically, he's so sovereign that there's no human responsibility or any of this kind of stuff. I would emphatically reject that. The Bible clearly says, Jesus in his language, he clearly says, you, like God chose you, but you must choose God, right? He says, unless the father draws you, you can't come. But when the father draws you, you must see and believe. So there's this, this tango that's happening there. I was uh, reading about uh, Charles Spurgeon and um, one time he was uh, leaving a church service and one of the congregants came to him and they were talking to him about human responsibility and divine sovereignty and how that plays out. And, and he's talking to him and said, Pastor Spurgeon, how do you reconcile these two things? And Spurgeon, the only way that Spurgeon could do it, he looks at him and he says, I never try to reconcile friends. And what he was saying in that moment is that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not equal opposites. They are not enemies. 
they are friends in a joint venture for the salvation of all mankind. And we see that clearly unfolding here uh, in the scriptures. And so Jesus has gotten them to an understanding that this is not just physical, but this is about eternal life. And then something phenomenal in the Greek happens. Something happens where Jesus, as he's using one word for the word eating, when you eat the bread, partake of the bread, he's using a certain word that indicates a momentary meal. Like you eat it one time, which we would equate to salvation. You, you come to Christ and you are saved in this one moment. But all of a sudden, there's a threshold that crosses and he stops using that word for salvation and he start, starts using another word, which basically indicates that it's not just one time I eat, but I come back to eat and I come back to eat. So what Jesus has done here is he said, listen, there's bread for salvation, but once salvation has occurred, then there's a bread for sustenance, right? And so he's saying, he's saying that, that although this, this desire to know God, this desire for salvation has been quenched, He's saying, yet there still remains another hunger that's to come for those who are truly uh, the children of God. And so this is, this is basically what Jesus is saying. And then we're going we're gonna to wrap things up. I asked Pastor Justin if he would come and, and help us receive communion because it seems so appropriate. But, but let, me just, let me just say this. Jesus is saying, the Father lives and I live because I'm connected, I'm tied to the Father. And if you wanna live, you must connect to me, right? It's this ongoing connection, it's this coming back again and again and again. It's very reminiscent of the, the true vine Jesus, we'll talk about in a few weeks, Jesus said, I am the true vine, you can do nothing outside of me, you must abide in me. It's very reminiscent of that, he's saying the Father lives and I live because of the Father, and if you wanna live, you've got to tie into me. And so throughout this whole section, what Jesus has done, he has taken people that are just duh in the head. And he has taken them from a moment where they only understand what is physical to a place where they understand not just physical, but what's eternal. The salvation that only Christ can give. And then he takes them further and he says, but you know what? If you don't just want eternal life so that you can go to heaven, if you want life and life to the fullest, keep coming back to the bread keep coming back and drinking into the presence, keep coming back and feasting on the word, keep coming back and growing so that your life can be everything that I have called it to be, Amen. right? I remember uh, A.W. Tozer and I'm, I'm done. One time he, uh, I'm gonna mess this up on LAM. One time Tozer said this, he said the only difference between modern day Christians and old time saints is that when the spirit of God moved upon them, they responded. And tonight, I just wanna encourage you as we close. In order to live that life where it is truly to the fullest, we have to be a people that when the spirit of the Lord moves upon us, we respond. When the Lord calls us to the prayer closet, we respond. When the Lord calls us to fill a need, we, we respond. When the Lord calls us to his word, we respond. Because it's in those moments that the fusion of the natural and the supernatural happen, and all of a sudden there's something birthed in that moment 
that isn't birthed any other way. And so tonight, we're gonna, I'm going to ask Pastor Justin to come. We're going to receive communion tonight. Um, this whole scripture here, as you can tell, Jesus near here the end. Um, by the way, this is the most controversial teaching that Jesus had ever done. Almost all of his disciples left him because they could not handle what he was saying. But Jesus ultimately says this. He says, listen, if you don't eat this bread and drink this blood. He says, if you don't eat of my body and drink of my blood, you cannot be my disciples. This would foreshadow what Jesus would say at the Last Supper when he would basically repeat the same thing. And so tonight I want us to receive communion, just soak in the Lord's presence for, you know, the two minutes we have left. Thank you so much. Lord bless you. We'll see you next Wednesday.